Boys Will Be Boys, Part Two, by Irvin S. Cobb. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Mike Harris. Days that came after this, on through the midsummer, were with variations but repetitions of the day I have just described. Each morning, Pipo Day would go to either the courthouse or Judge Priest's home to turn over to the judge the unopened mail which had been delivered to him at Gafford's stables. Then he would secure from the judge a loan of money against his inheritance. Generally, the amount of his daily borrowing was a dollar. Rarely was it so much as two dollars, and only once was it more than two dollars. By nightfall the sum would have been expended upon perfectly useless and absolutely childish devices. It might be that he would buy toy pistols and paper caps for himself and his following of urchins, or that his whim would lead him to expend all the money in tin flutes. In one case the group he so incongruously headed would be for that one day a gang of make-believe banditti. In another they would constitute themselves a fife and drum corps, with barrel-tops for the drums, and would march through the streets where scandalized adults stood in their tracks to watch them go by, they all the while making weird sounds, which with them passed for music. Or again the available cash resources would be invested in provender. And then there would be an outing in the woods. Under Pipo Day's captaincy his chosen band of youngsters picked dewberries. They went swimming together in Guthrie's gravel pit out by the old fairgrounds, where his spare naked shanks contrasted strongly with their plump freckled legs, as all of them splashed through the shallows making for deep water. Under his leadership they stole watermelons from Mr. Dick Bell's patch, afterward eating their spoils in thickets of grapevines along the banks of Perkins Creek. It was felt that mental befuddlement and mortal folly could reach no greater heights, or no lower depths, than on a certain hour of a certain day along toward the end of August, when O'Day came forth from his quarters in Gafford's stables, wearing a pair of boots that Mr. Biederman's establishment had turned out to his order and his measure, not such boots as a sensible man might be expected to wear, but boots that were exaggerated and monstrous counterfeits of the red-topped, scroll-fronted, brass-toed, stub-heeled, squeaky-soled booties that small boys of an earlier generation possessed. Very proudly and seemingly unconscious of, or at least oblivious to, the derisive remarks that the appearance of these new belongings drew from many persons, the owner went clumping about in them with the rumply legs of his trousers tucked down in them, and ballooning up and out over the tops in folds which overlapped from his knee-joints halfway down his attenuated calves. As Deputy Sheriff Quarles said, the combination was a sight fit to make a horse laugh. It may be that small boys have a lesser sense of humor than horses have, for certainly the boys who were the old man's invariable shadows did not laugh at him, or at his boots either. Between the whiskered senior and his small comrades there existed a Freemasonry that made them all sense a thing beyond the ken of most of their elders. Perhaps this was because the elders, being blind in their superior wisdom, saw neither this thing nor the communion that flourished. They saw only the farcical joke. But his honor, Judge Priest, to cite a conspicuous exception, seemed not to see the lamentable comedy of it. Indeed, it seemed to some almost as if Judge Priest were aiding and abetting the befogged O'Day in his demented enterprises, his peculiar excursions and his weird purchases. 
if he did not actually encourage him in these constant exhibitions of witlessness, certainly there were no evidences available to show that he sought to dissuade O'Day from his strange course. At the end of a fortnight one citizen, in whom patience had ceased to be a virtue, and to whose nature long-continued silence on any public topic was intolerable, felt it his duty to speak to the judge upon the subject. This gentleman, his name was S. P. Escott, held with many that, for the good name of the community, steps should be taken to abate the infantile, futile activities of the besotted legatee. Afterward, Mr. Escott, giving a partial account of the conversation with Judge Priest to certain of his friends, showed unfeigned annoyance at the outcome. "'I claim the old man's not fitting to be running a court any longer,' he stated bitterly. "'He's too old and peevish. That's what ails him. For one, I'm certain not never going to vote for him again. Why, it's getting to be as much as a man's life's worth to stop that there spiteful old crank in the street and put a civil question to him. That's what's the matter.' "'All right. What happened, S.P.?' inquired someone. Why, "'Why, here's what happened,' explained the aggrieved Mr. Escott. "'I hadn't any more than started in to tell him the whole town was talking about the way that daffy old peepo day was carrying on, and that something had ought to be done about it. And didn't he think it was beholden on him as a circuit judge to do something right away, such as having O'Day tuck up and tried for a lunatic? And that I, for one, was ready and willing to testify to the crazy things I'd seen done with my own eyes, when he cut in on me and just as good as told me to my own face that if I'd quit tending to other people's business, I'd maybe have more business of my own to tend to. Think of that, gentlemen. A circuit court judge, bemeaning a citizen and a taxpayer. He checked himself briefly. Oh, anyway, a citizen, that way. It shows he can't be rational his own self. Personally, I claim old priest is failing mentally. He must be. And if anybody can be found to run agin him at the next election, you gentlemen just watch and see who gets my vote. Having uttered this threat with deep and significant emphasis, Mr. Escott, still muttering, turned and entered the front gate of his boarding-house. Well, it was not exactly his boarding-house his wife ran it, but Mr. Escott lived there and voted from there. But the apogee of Peepo Day's carnival of weird vagaries of deportment came at the end of two months. Two months in which each day the man furnished cumulative and piled-up material for derisive and jocular comment on the part of a very considerable proportion of his fellow-townsmen. Three occurrences of a widely dissimilar nature, yet all closely interrelated to the main issue, marked the climax of the man's new role in his new career. The first of these was the arrival of his legacy. The second was a one-ring circus, and the third and last was a nephew. In the form of sundry bills of exchange, the estate left by the late Daniel O'Day of the town of Kilmare in the island of Ireland was on a certain afternoon delivered over into Judge Priest's hands, and by him in turn handed to the rightful owner, after which sundry indebtednesses, representing the total of the old judge's day-to-day -day cash advances to O'Day, were liquidated. The ceremony of deducting this sum took place at the Planters' Bank whither the two had journeyed in company from the courthouse, having with the aid of the paying teller instructed O'Day in the technical details requisite to the drawing of personal checks. Judge Priest went home, and had his bag packed, and left for Reelfoot Lake to spend a week fishing. As a consequence he missed the remaining two events following immediately thereafter. The circus was no great shakes of a circus, in no grand, 
glittering, gorgeous, glorious pageant of education and entertainment, traveling on its own special trains. No vast, tented city of world's wonders and world's champions, heralded for weeks and weeks in advance of its coming by dead walls emblazoned with the finest examples of the lithographer's art, oh, and by half-page advertisements in the daily evening news. On the contrary, it was a shabby little wagon show, which, coming overland on short notice, rolled into town under horsepower, and set up its ragged and dusty canvases on the vacant lot across from Yeiser's drug store. Compared with the street parade of any of its great and famous rivals, the street parade of this circus was a meagre and disappointing thing. Why, there was only one elephant, a dwarfish and debilitated-looking creature, worn mangy and slick on its various angles, like the cover of an old-fashioned hair-cloth trunk. And obviously most of the closed cages were weather-beaten stake-wagons in disguise. Nevertheless, there was a sizable turnout of people for the afternoon performance. After all, a circus was a circus. Moreover, this particular circus was marked at the afternoon performance by happenings of a nature most decidedly unusual. At one o'clock the doors were opened. At one-ten the eyes of the proprietor were made glad, and his heart was uplifted within him by the sight of a strange procession, drawing nearer and nearer across the scuffed turf of the common, and heading in the direction of the red ticket-wagon. At the head of the procession marched Peepo Day, only, of course, the proprietor didn't know it was Peepo Day. A queer figure in his rumpled black clothes and his red-topped brass-toed boots, and with one hand holding fast to the string of a captive toy balloon. Behind him, in an uneven jostling formation, followed many small boys and some small girls. A census of the ranks would have developed that here were included practically all the juvenile white population who otherwise, through a lack of funds, would have been denied the opportunity to patronize this circuit, or, in fact, any circus. Each member of the joyous company was likewise the bearer of a toy balloon, red, yellow, blue, green, or purple, as the case might be. Over the line of heads the taut, rubbery globes rode on their tethers, nodding and twisting like so many big, iridescent bubbles. And half a block away, at the edge of the lot, a balloon vendor whose entire stock had been disposed of in one splendid transaction, now stood, empty-handed but full-pocketed, marveling at the stroke of luck that enabled him to take an afternoon off and rest his voice. Out of a seemingly bottomless exchequer, Peepo Day brought tickets of admission for all. But this was only the beginning. Once inside the tent he procured accommodations in the reserved seat section, for himself and those who accompanied him. From such superior points of vantage the whole crew of them witnessed the performance, from the thrilling grand entry with spangled ladies and gentlemen riding two by two on broad-backed steeds, to the tumbling about introducing the full strength of the company, which of course came at the end. They munched fresh roasted peanuts and balls of sugar-coated popcorn, slightly rancid, until they munched no longer with zest, but merely mechanically. They drank pink lemonade to an extent that threatened absolute depletion of the fluid contents of both barrels in the refreshment stand, out in the menagerie tent. They whooped their unbridled approval when the wild Indian chief, after shooting down a stuffed coon with a bow and arrow from somewhere up near the top of the center pole, while balancing himself jauntily erect upon the haunches of a coursing white charger, suddenly flung off his feathered headdress, his wig, and his fringed leather garments, 
and revealed himself in pink fleshings as the principal bareback rider. They screamed in a chorus of delight when the funny old clown, who had been forcibly deprived of three tin flutes in rapid succession, now produced yet a fourth from the seemingly inexhaustible depths of his baggy white pants, a flute with a string and a bent pin attached to it, and secretly affixing the pin in the tail of the cross ringmaster's coat, was thereafter enabled to toot sharp shrill blasts at frequent intervals, much to the chagrin of the ringmaster, who seemed utterly unable to discover the whereabouts of the instrument dangling behind him. But no one among them whooped louder or laughed longer than their elderly and bewhiskered friend, who sat among them paying the bills. As his guests they stayed for the concert, and following this they patronized the sideshow in a body. They had been almost the first upon the scene, assuredly they were the last of the audience to quit it. Indeed, before they tailed their confrere away from the spot, the sun was nearly down, and at scores of supper-tables all over town the tale of poor old Peepo Day's latest exhibition of freakishness was being retailed, with elaborations, to interested auditors. Estimates of the sum probably expended by him in this crowning extravagance ranged well up into the hundreds of dollars. As for the object of these speculations, he was destined not to eat any supper at all that night. Something happened that so upset him as to make him forget the meal altogether. It began to happen when he reached the modest home of P. Gafford, adjoining the Gafford stables, on Locust Street, and found sitting on the lowermost step of the porch a young man of untidy and unshaved aspect, who hailed him affectionately as Uncle Paul, and who showed deep annoyance and acute distress upon being rebuffed with chill words. It's possible that the strain of serving a three-month's sentence on the technical charge of vagrancy in a workhouse somewhere in Indiana had affected the young man's nerves. His ankle-bones still ached where the ball and chain had been hitched. On his palms the blisters induced by the incongenial use of a sledgehammer on a rock-pile had hardly as yet turned to calluses. So it's only fair to presume that his nervous system felt the strain of his recent confining experiences also. Almost tearfully he pleaded with Peepo Day to remember the ties of blood that bound them. Repeatedly he pointed out that he was the only known kinsman of the other in all the world, and, of course, therefore, had more reason than any other living being to expect kindness and generosity as uncle's hands. He spoke socialistically of the advisability of an equal division. Failing to make any impression here, he mentioned the subject of a loan, at first hopefully, but finally despairingly. When he was done, Peep O'Day, in a perfectly colorless and unsympathetic voice, bade him good-bye. Not good-night, but good-bye. And going inside the house, he closed the door behind him, leaving his newly returned relative outside, and quite alone. At this the young man uttered violent language, but, since there was nobody present to hear him, it is likely he found small satisfaction in his profanity, rich though it may have been in metaphor and variety. So presently he betook himself off, going straight to the office in legal row of H. B. Sublet, attorney-at-law. From the circumstance that he found Mr. Sublet in, though it was long past that gentleman's office hours, and, moreover, found Mr. Sublet waiting in an expectant and attentive attitude, it might have been adduced by one skilled in the trick of putting two and two together, that the pair of them had reached a prior understanding some time during the day, and that the visit of the young man to the Gafford home 
and his speeches there had all been parts of a scheme planned out at a prior operation. Be this as it may, as so soon as Mr. Sublet had heard his caller's version of the meeting upon the porch, he lost no time in taking certain legal steps. That very night, on behalf of his client, denominated in the documents as Percival Dwyer, Esquire, he prepared a petition addressed to the circuit judge of the district, setting forth that inasmuch as Paul Felix O'Day had by diverse acts shown himself to be of unsound mind, now, therefore, came his nephew and next of kin, praying that a committee or curator be appointed to take over the estate of the said Paul Felix O'Day, and administer the same in accordance with the orders of the court, until such time as the said Paul Felix O'Day should recover his reason, or should pass from this life, and so forth and so on, not to mention whereas is in great number and aforesaids abounding through the text in the utmost profusion. On the following morning the papers were filed with Circuit Clerk Milam. That vigilant barrister, Mr. Sublet, brought them in person to the courthouse before nine o'clock, he having the interests of his client at heart, and perhaps also visions of a large contingent fee in his mind. No retainer had been paid. The state of Mr. Dwyer's finances, or rather the absence of any finances, had precluded the performance of that customary detail, but to Mr. Sublet's experienced mind the prospects of future increment seemed large. Accordingly, he was all for prompt action. Formally, he said he wished to go on record as demanding for his principal a speedy hearing of the issue, with a view to preventing the defendant named in the pleadings from dissipating any more of the estate lately bequeathed to him, and now fully in his possession, or words to that effect. Mr. Malam felt justified in getting into communication with Judge Priest over the long-distance phone, and the judge, cutting short his vacation and leaving uncaught vast numbers of bass of perch in Real Foot Lake, came home, arriving late that night. Next morning, having issued diverse orders in connection with the impending litigation, he sent a messenger to find Peep O'Day, and to, to direct O'Day to come to the courthouse for a personal interview. Shortly thereafter, a scene that had occurred some two months earlier, with his honour's private chamber for a setting, was substantially duplicated. There was the same cast of two, the same stage properties, the same atmosphere of untidy tidiness, and, as before, the dialogue was in Judge Priest's hands. He led, and his fellow-character followed his lead. Pete, he was saying, you understand, don't you, that this here fragrant nephew of yours that's turned up from nowheres in particular is fixing to get ready to try to prove that you are feeble-minded? Oh, and on top of that, he's going to ask that a committee be appointed for you. In other words, that somebody or other shall be named by the court, meaning me, to take charge of your property and control the spending of it from now on? Yes, sir, stated O'Day. Pete Gafford, he sat down with me and made it all clear to me, yesterday evening, after they'd uh, done served the papers on me. All right, then. Now, I'm going to fix the hearing for tomorrow morning at ten. The other side is asking for a quick decision, and I rather figure they're entitled to it. Is that agreeable to you? Whatever you say, Judge. Well, have you retained a lawyer to represent your interests in court? That's the main question that I sent for you to ask you. Do I need a lawyer, Judge? Well, there have been times when I regarded lawyers as being superfluous, stated Judge Priest dryly. Still, in most cases, litigants do have them round when the case is being heard. Well, I don't know as I need any lawyer to help me say what I've got to say, said O'Day. 
Judge, you ain't never asked me no questions about the way I've been carrying on since I come into this here money. But I reckon maybe this is as good a time as any to tell you just why I've been acting the way I've done. You see, you see, sir. Hold on, broke in Judge Priest. Up to now, as my friend, it would have been perfectly proper for you to give me your confidences if you was minded so to do. But now I reckon you'd better not. You see, I'm the judge that's got to decide whether you are a responsible person, whether you're mentally capable of handling your own financial affairs, or whether you ain't. So you'd better wait and make your statement in your own behalf to me whilst I'm sitting on the bench. I'll see that you get an opportunity to do so, and I'll listen to it. And I'll give it all the consideration it's deserving of. And, on second thought, perhaps it would only be a waste of time and money for you to go hiring a lawyer, especially to represent you. Under the law it's my duty, in such a case as here one is, to appoint a member of the bar to serve during the proceedings as your guardian ad litem. Uh, you, you don't need to be startled, he added, as O'Day flinched at the sound in his ears of these strange and fearsome words. A guardian ad litem is simply a lawyer that tends to your affairs till the case is settled one way or the other. If you had a dozen lawyers, I'd have to appoint them just the same. So you don't need to worry about that part of it. Well, that's all. You can go now if you want to. Only if I was you, I wouldn't draw out any more money from the bank twixt now and the time when I make my decision. All things considered, it was an unusual assemblage that Judge Priest regarded over the top rims of his glasses, as he sat facing it in his broad armchair, with the flat top of the bench intervening between him and the gathering. Not often, even in the case of exciting murder trials, had the old courtroom held a larger crowd. Certainly never had it held so many boys. Boys, and boys exclusively filled the back rows of benches downstairs. More boys packed the narrow shelf-like balcony that spanned the chamber across its far end. Mainly small boys, barefooted, sunburned, freckle-faced, shock-headed boys. And for boys they were strangely silent and strangely attentive. The petitioner sat with his counsel, Mr. Sublette. The petitioner had been newly shaved, and for some mysterious source had been equipped with a neat wardrobe. Plainly he was endeavouring to wear a look of virtue, which was a difficult undertaking, as you would understand had you known the petitioner. The offending party to the action was seated across the room, touching elbows with old Colonel Farrell, dean of the local bar and its most florid orator. The court will designate Colonel Horatio Farrell as guardian ad litem for the defendant during these proceedings, Judge Priest had stated a few minutes earlier using the formal and grammatical language he reserved exclusively for his corporate room. At once old Colonel Farrell had hitched his chair up alongside O'Day, had asked him several questions in a tone inaudible to those about them, had listened to the whispered answers of O'Day, and then had nodded his huge curly white dome of a head, as though amply satisfied with the responses. Let us skip the preliminaries. True, they seemed to interest the audience. Here, though, they would be tedious reading. Likewise, in touching upon the opening and outlining address of attorney-at-law Sublet, let us, for the sake of time and space, be very much briefer than Mr. Sublet was. For our present purposes, I deem it sufficient to say that, in all his professional career, Mr. Sublet was never more eloquent, never more forceful, never more vehement in his allegations, and never more convinced, as he himself stated not once but repeatedly, of his ability to prove the facts he alleged by competent and unbiased testimony. These facts, he pointed out, were common knowledge in the community, 
Nevertheless, he stood prepared to buttress them with the evidence of reputable witnesses given under oath. Mr. Sublette, having unwound at length, now wound up. He sat down, perspiring freely, and through the perspiration radiating confidence in his contentions, confidence in the result, and, most of all, unbounded confidence in Mr. Sublette. Now Colonel Farrell was standing up to address the court, under the cloak of a theatrical presence and a large oratund manner, and behind a Ciceronian command of sonorous language, the Colonel carried concealed a shrewd old brain. It was as though a skilled marksman lurked in ambush amid a tangle of luxuriant foliage. In this particular instance, moreover, it is barely possible that the Colonel was acting on a cue privily conveyed to him before the court opened. "'May it please your honour,' he began, "'I have just conferred with the defendant here, and acting in the capacity of his guardian ad litem, I have advised him to waive and open an address by counsel. Indeed, the defendant has no counsel. Furthermore, the defendant, also acting upon my advice, will present no witnesses as his own behalf. But, with your honour's permission, the defendant will now make a personal statement, and thereafter he will rest content leaving the final arbitrum of the issue to your honour's discretion. "'I object!' exclaimed Mr. Sublette briskly. "'On what ground does the learned counsel object?' "'On the grounds that since the mental competence of this man is concerned, since it is our contention that he is patently and plainly a victim of senility, an individual prematurely in his dotage, any utterances by him will be of no value whatsoever in aiding the conscience and intelligence of the court to arrive at a fair and just conclusion regarding the defendant's mental condition. Mr. Sublette excelled in the use of big words. There was no doubt about that. "'The objection is overruled,' said Judge Priest. He nodded in the direction of O'Day and Colonel Farrell. "'The court will hear the defendant. He is not to be interrupted while making his statement. The defendant may proceed.' Without further urging, O'Day stood up, a tall, slab-sided rack of a man, with his long arms dangling at his side, half facing Judge Priest and half facing his nephew and his nephew's lawyer. Without hesitation, he began to speak, and this is what he said. There's maybe some here as knows about how I was raised and fetched up. My pa and my ma died when I was just only a baby, so I was brung up out here at the old county poorhouse as a pauper. I can't remember the time when I didn't have to work for my board and keep and work hard. When other boys were going to school and playing hooky and going in washing in the creek and playing games and all such as that, I had to work. I never done no playing round in my whole life. Not till here just recently, anyway. But I always craved to play round some. I didn't never say nothing about it to nobody after I growed up, because I, I figured it out that they, they wouldn't understand and maybe they'd laugh at me, but all these years, ever since I left that there poorhouse, I've had a hankerin' here inside of me. And he lifted one hand and touched his breast. I, I've had a hankerin' to be a boy, and do all the things a boy does, to, to do the things I was chiseled out of doing whilst I was of a suitable age to be doing them. I call to mind that I used to dream in my sleep about doing them. But the dream never come true, not till just here lately. It didn't have no chance to come true. Not till then. So when this money come to me so sudden and unbeknownst, like I said to myself, that I was going to make that there dream come true, and I started out for it to do it, and I done it, 
and I reckon that's the cause of my being here today, accused of being feeble-minded. But even so, I don't regret it none. If it was all to do over again, I'd, I'd, I'd do it just the very same way. What? Well, I never known what it was till here two months or so ago to, to have my fill of bananas and candy and ginger snaps and, and all such knick-knacks as them. All my life I've been craving secretly to own a pair of red-topped boots with brass toes on them, like I used to see other boys wearing in the winter time when I was out yonder at that poorhouse, wearing an old pair of somebody else's cast-off shoes, maybe a, a man's shoes with rags wrapped around my feet to keep the snow from coming through the cracks in them, and to keep them from slipping right spang off my feet. I got three toes frostbit once during a cold spell wearing them kind of shoes. But here the other week I found myself able to buy me some red-top boots with brass toes on them, so I had them made to order, and I'm wearing them now. I wear them regular, even if it is summertime. I take a heap of pleasure out of them. And also, all my life long, I, I, I've been wanting to, to, to go to a circus. But not till three days ago, I, I didn't never get no chance to go to one. Now, that gentleman, that gentleman yonder, Mr. Mr. Sublet, he lowed just just that, that I was leading a lot of little boys in this here town into bad habits. He said that I was learning them nobody knowed what devilment. And he spoke of my having egged them on to steal watermelons from Mr. Bell's watermelon patch out there three miles from town on the Marshallville gravel road. You all heard what he just now said about that. I didn't mean no offense. And I beg his pardon for contradicting him right out for everybody here in the big courthouse. But, Mr., you're wrong. I didn't lead these here boys astray that I've been running around with. They're mighty nice clean boys, all of them. Some of them are mighty near as poor as what I used to be, but there ain't no real harm in any of them. We get along together just fine, me and them, and without no preaching, nor nothing like that. I've done my best these weeks. We've been frolicking and projecting round together to keep them from growing up to do mean things. I use chawing tobacco myself, but I've told them I don't know how many times that if they chartle stunt them in their growth, and I've got several of them that was smoking cigarettes on the slide, promised me they'd quit. So I don't figure as I've done them boys any real harm by going around with them, and I believe if you was to ask them, they'd all tell you the same. So Now, now about them watermelons. Since this gentleman has brung them watermelons up, I'm going to tell you the whole truth about that, too. He cast a quick, furtive look, almost a guilty look, toward the rear of the courthouse before he went on. They, them watermelons wasn't really stole at all. I, I seen Mr. Dick Bell forehand and arranged with him to pay him in full for whatever damage might be done. But, you see, I knowed watermelons stay sweeter to a boy if he thought he'd hooked them out of a patch. So I never let on to my little partners yonder that I'd the same as paid Mr. Bell in advance for the melons we snuck out of his patch and at in the woods. They've all been thinking up till now that we really hooked them watermelons, but if that was wrong, I'm sorry for it. Mr. Sublet, you just now said that I was frittin' away my property on vain foolishment. I think thems was the words you said, fritterin' and vain foolishment. Well, maybe you're right, sir, about the fritterin' part. But if spending money in a certain way gives a man as much pleasure as it's given me these last four months, if the money is hisn by rights, I figure it can't be so very foolish, though it may appear so to some. Excusing these here clothes I got on, and these here boots, which ain't paid for yet, but 
is charging up to me on Feldberg Brothers' books and Mr. M. Biederman's books. I, I didn't spend only a dollar a day, or maybe two dollars, and once three dollars in a single day out of what was coming to me. Now, the judge here, he let me have that out of his own pocket, and I paid him back. And that was all I did spend till here three days ago when the, their circus come to town. I reckon I did spend right smart then. But money had come from the old country only the day before, so I went to the bank and they writ out one of them pieces of paper, which is called a check, and I signed it with my mark, and they give me the money I wanted, and even two hundred dollars, and part of that their money I used to pay for circus tickets for all the little boys and little girls I could find in this town that couldn't have got to the circus no other way. Some of them are sitting back there behind you all now. Some of the boys, I mean. I don't see none of the little girls. There was several of them told me at the time that they hadn't never seen a circus, not in their whole lives. For that matter, I hadn't either, but I didn't want no poor child in this town to grow up to be as old as I am without having been to at least one circus. So I'd taken them all in and paid all the bills, and when night come there wasn't but about nine dollars left out of the whole two hundred that I'd started out with in the morning, but I don't begrudge spending it. It looked to me like it was money well invested. They all seemed to enjoy it, and I know I done so. There may be bigger circuses than what that one was, but I don't see how a circus could have been any better than this here one I'm telling you about. If it was ten times as big, I don't regret the investment, and I don't aim to lie about it now. Mr. Sublet, I'd do the same thing over again if the chance should come, lawsuit or no law wit. If you should win this here case, maybe I wouldn't have no second chance. If some gentleman is appointed as a committee to handle my money, it's likely he wouldn't look at the thing the same way I do. And it's likely he wouldn't let me have so much money all at one lump to spend taking a passel of little shavers that ain't no kin to me to the circus and to the sideshow, besides letting them stay for the grand concert or after show and all. But I've done it once, and I've got it to remember about and think about my own mind as long as I live. I'm about finished now. There's just one thing more I'd like to say, and that is this. Mr. Sublet, now he said a minute or so ago that I was in my second childhood. Meaning no offense, sir, but you was wrong there, too. The way I look at it, a man can't be in his second childhood without he's had his first childhood, and I was cheated plumb out of mine. I'm more than sixty years old, as near as I can figure, but I'm trying to be a boy before it's too late. He paused a minute and looked around him. The way I look at it, Judge Priest, son, y'all, every man that grows up, no matter how old he may get to be, is entitled to have been a boy once in his life. I, I reckon that's all. He sat down and dropped his eyes upon the floor, as though ashamed that his temerity should have carried him so far. There was a strange little hush filling the courthouse. It was Judge Priest who broke it. The court, he said, has by the words just spoken by this man been sufficiently advised as to the sanity of the man himself? The court cares to hear nothing more from either side on this subject. The petition is dismissed. Very probably these last words may have been as much Greek to the juvenile members of the audience, possibly, though they were made aware of the meaning of them by the look upon the face of nephew Percival Dwyer, and the look upon the face of nephew Percival Dwyer's attorney. 
At any rate, his honour hardly had uttered the last syllable of his decision before, from the rear of the courthouse and from the gallery above, there arose a shrill, vehement, sincere sound of yelling, exultant, triumphant, and deafening. It continued for upward of a minute before the small disturbers remembered where they were and reduced themselves to a state of comparative quiet. For reasons best known to himself, Judge Priest, who ordinarily stickled for order and decorum in his courtroom, made no effort to quell the outburst, or have it quelled, not even when a considerable number of the adults present joined in it, having first cleared their throats of a slight huskiness that had come upon them severally and generally. Presently the judge rapped for quiet, and got it. It was apparent that he had more to say, and all there hearkened to hear what it might be. I have just this to add, quoth his honor. It is the official judgment of this court that the late defendant, being entirely sane, is competent to manage his own affairs after his own preferences, and it is the private opinion of this court that not only is the late defendant sane, but he is the sanest man in this entire jurisdiction. Mr. Clerk, this court stands adjourned. Coming down the three short steps from the raised platform of the bench, Judge Priest beckoned to Sheriff Giles Birdsong, who, at the tail of the departing crowd, was shepherding its last exuberant members through the doorway. Giles, said Judge Priest in an undertone when the worthy sheriff had drawn near, the circuit clerk tells me that there's an indictment for malicious mischief again this here purse Dwyer knocking round among the wreckage somewheres. An indictment the grand jury returned several sessions back, but which was never pressed, owing to the sudden departure from our midst of the person in question. I wonder if it would be too much trouble for you to sort of drop a hint in the ear of the young man or his lawyer that the said indictment is apt to be revived, and that the said Dwyer is liable to be tucked into custody by you and lodged in the county jail sometime during the ensuing forty-eight hours, without he should see his way clear during the meantime to get clean out of the city, county, and state. Now, would that be possible? What? Trouble? No, sir. It won't be no trouble to me at all, said Mr. Birdsong promptly. Why, it'll be more of a pleasure, Judge. And so it was. Except for one small added and purely incidental circumstance, our narrative is ended. That same afternoon Judge Priest sat on the front porch of his old white house out on Clay Street, waiting for Jeff Poindexter to summon him to supper. Peep O'Day opened the front gate and come up the graveled walk between the twin rows of silver-leaf poplars. The judge, rising to greet his visitor, met him at the top step. "'Come in,' bade the judge heartily, "'and sit down a spell and rest your face and hands.' Uh, "'No, sir, much obliged, but I ain't got only a minute to stay,' said O'Day. "'I ju just come out here, sir, to thank you for what you done today on my account in the big courthouse, and, and, and to make you a little kind of a present.' "'It's all right to thank me, said Judge Priest, but I couldn't accept any reward for rendering a decision in accordance with the plain fact.' Uh, uh, tain't, tain't, tain't no gift of money, and nothing like that, O'Day hastened to explain. Really, really, sir, it don't amount to nothing at all, excusedly. But a little while ago I happened to be in Mr. B. Weil and Son's store doing a little trading, and I run across a new kind of knick-knack, which it seemed like to me it was about the best thing I ever tasted in my whole life. So on the chance, sir, that you might have a sweet tooth, too, I've taken the liberty of bringing you a sack of them, and, and, and here they are, sir, three flavors, strawberry, lemon, and vanilla. Suddenly overcome with confusion, he dislodged a large-sized paper bag from his side-coat pocket, 
and thrust it into Judge Priest's hands. Then, backing away, he turned and clumped down the gravel path in great and embarrassed haste. Judge Priest opened the bag and peered down into it. It contained a sticky, sugary dozen of flattened confections, each molded round a short length of wooden splinter. These syrupy articles, which have since come into quite general use, are known, I believe, as all-day suckers. When Judge Priest looked up again, Peep O'Day was outside the gate, clumping down the uneven sidewalk of Clay Street with long strides of his booted legs. Half a dozen small boys, who, it was evident, had remained hidden during the ceremony of presentation, now mysteriously appeared, and were accompanying the departing donor, half-trotting to keep up with him. End of Boys Will Be Boys, Part 2, by Irvin S. Cobb, read by Mike Harris.